This week on the 624, we talk about herrings going back to the future so they can see civilizations 11 meters underwater. Let's get started. Welcome to the 624, the weekly podcast of Central Texas Creation Ministries, taking a stand on God's Word and trusting it from the very first verse. Join us as we look at creation and the Bible to understand the world around us. Welcome to the 624. My name is Dave Napier. I am the host of the podcast, uh, founder of Central Texas Creation Ministries, and the creator of the Central Texas Creation Conference coming up October 12th. Be sure and get your tickets online at centraltexascreation.com today. Go right. No, don't go right now. Go right after the podcast. All right. Uh, of course, I said my name is Dave Napier. I am glad you're hanging out with me here on the 624, where even the name tells you that God created in six literal 24-hour periods. Now, I'm excited to be doing this podcast because I found an article. Of course, I've been researching for the conference, you know, putting together my talks, things like this. And uh, I found an article that just excited me. I love it. Uh, now, I did have a good weekend, though. I always talk about my weekend. Uh, had a great weekend. I got to explore the creek bed on Saturday. I say the creek bed. The creek where I live... Okay, I don't live on a creek or in a creek. Let me just let me rephrase that. The creek over by where I live, <laughs> I live by a park, and uh, there's this creek that I've been walking around, and it, there's usually water in it, but it's been drying up slowly, and it's really kind of sad because it is basically almost bone dry. There is just small areas. Uh, now I, I kind of took advantage of that because there's a few places you can climb down into the creek bed, and I just walked back and forth up and down the creek bed, and uh, a lot of cool stuff. A lot of little salamanders, a lot of little baby frogs, and uh, little fish in the little bitty pools of water that's left. Uh, but I just had a blast climbing over boulders and you know, looking at the walls of the creek where the sediment is. There's three different kinds. Of, uh, in the areas, there's three different kinds of sediment uh, in there or rock. And in some areas, there's just two. It's really kind of interesting. But I had fun. I was like a little kid climbing over rocks and balancing on stuff. You know, pretty much doing everything I learned not to do as an adult, but I did it anyway. Uh, but I enjoyed it. Spent a couple of hours exploring and having fun, but it could not compare with Sunday. Because Sunday, I got to go to my sister's church, uh, which is a good thing, but that's not the important part. I got to go and see my niece get baptized. Miss Bailey got baptized this weekend on Sunday. And so, uh, even better, I got to pray for my niece in front of the whole church. I wasn't expecting that. I was just trying to take video. But uh, the pastor, Pastor Kyle, uh, asked me to pray for Bailey, and it was a huge blessing. It really was, I have to admit. You know, it was great seeing everybody because I've been to that church before. My sister has been at this church. She is the minister of music, leads the worship, and uh, I've been to that church over many, many years. And so it was good to see everybody, Frank and Emery and Kyle and everybody. And, of course, my family's there, my mother, my sister, and her whole family. And so I get to see Bailey and Blake and her husband, Gerald, and everybody. Uh, so if you're up in the Lockhart-Luling area, you know, you got to check out, take some time to go see Mineral Springs Baptist Church. Um, I was trying to think how to describe the church. I guess, you know, one of the things that struck me when I was there this time is that they sing really loud. 
Uh, it's it's not a huge church. I mean, it's it's a, a normal sized church. It's actually a pretty good sized church, especially for out in the country. It's in between Lockhart and Luling. Uh, but they're just that church that's always smiling and laughing and singing loud. I mean, it's a cool little church. You really need to go check it out. If you're out in the area, you're looking for a church, or you just want to go have some fun, go check out Pastor Kyle and uh, Middle Springs Baptist Church. So anyway, I hope you had a good weekend. And now before I get started uh, with the podcast, I want to remind you that ICR is having their grand opening this coming Labor Day, September 2nd. Uh, And if you want to check out the observable evidence of creation, you need to go. I've said it before and I'll say it again. These guys don't do it unless they can do it right. Uh, the Institute for Creation Research doesn't do anything unless they know they can do it top-notch. So I am super excited to go to this Creation Museum, uh, the Discovery Center. I think it's going to be huge for so many people who will come to visit there in Dallas. Now, obviously, don't forget the Creation Museum and the Ark Encounter there in Kentucky. But for those people in the far west... This is going to be huge. It's going to be closer for them. It's going to be a huge opportunity to get family members and friends and coworkers to a place where they can see this information in a professional level museum and planetarium. So be sure and check out icr.org or you can go to discoverycenter.icr.org to get more information about that. Now, as we get into the podcast today, I have several articles, so I'm going to try and go fast. But the first one is just something fun. Uh, I got to ask, were you a fan of Back to the Future? Because I was. You know, Marty McFly and Great Scott, all this stuff. It was so much fun. That whole trilogy was huge when I was young. And it like piqued everybody's interest in what future tech would actually be like. And we can finally know... Because Nike was inspired by the self-adjusting sneakers in the second movie. And they're coming out with their own version in November. You'll be able to just put your foot in and then your heel, when it comes in, it will hit a sensor. And the shoe will actually tighten around your foot. And then there's going to be buttons on the side that will allow you to adjust for the tightness to your comfort level. How awesome is that? How cool is that? Now, I mean, if they now if only they could put a button on the back that would shoot like foot powder out. Now that would be even better. But I mean, honestly, this is so cool, so impressive. And you know, we've often wondered what it would be like to live in Back to the Future, and now you can find out in November. Now you could be wondering, how much is this gonna set me back? And that's the scary part, because we don't really know, but Nike themselves says to expect high price tag. Now, if Nike thinks it's expensive, I'm pretty sure that's going to be out of Dave's budget, even if he saves up for a year. So at this point, uh, be saving up if you want a pair. But here's the cool part. You know, everybody's looking at this as sort of the cool factor. But in the future, as this tech gets more common, it becomes easier to manufacture, uh, it's cheaper, What could this application be used for, for people who have degenerative diseases? Uh, They've lost an arm, arthritis in their hands. You know, this could have definite possibilities to take things further than having to use slip-on shoes or Velcro straps and things like this. 
you know, what else could we use this technology for? The possibilities are probably endless here in the future. So you can check that one out on the website at centraltexascreation.com. But I want to get into something that's also cool, but it's going to make you sweat. The title of the article is Wearable Sensors Detect What's in Your Sweat. The little tagline is, New easy-to-make sensors can provide real-time measurements of sweat rate and electrolytes and metabolites in perspiration. It's a little gross if you think about it, but the science behind this is actually kind of interesting. Have you ever heard the term, you know, you're going to sweat something out of your system or uh, it's coming out of your pores? Well, what if we could now detect that stuff real time? You know, the application being talked about has more to do with monitoring people as they exercise or monitoring health in certain environments, things like this. But they've come up with a sensor that detects how much you're sweating, detects the amount of metabolites in your sweat, and the amount of electrolytes in your sweat. Because, of course, all of these are important in keeping you hydrated. Now, like I said, right now they're just using in the sense that they want to monitor people for how hydrated they are, you know, keeping them safe so they don't do damage to their bodies, things like this. But future application could be very exciting. They're exploring what else they can learn from our sweat. That sounds odd, but it's exciting because they're looking at things even like glucose levels. Think about it, not having to poke your finger for your blood and you could know what your glucose levels are or if they're too high or too low. You know, the question is, what else can we learn by monitoring our sweat? And that's the main point of the article is that this is just the beginning, but it's exciting because these monitors, these little sensors that they're using are absolutely amazing technology in and of themselves. They are in miniature, okay? They're actually imprinting the sensor onto a thin film. It's this really thin plastic type film that has the sensor imprinted right on it and it's done in rolls. It's actually printed out in rolls like a news, like huge newspapers. And it makes it very fast and very cheap to manufacture. But here's the crazy part. On the little thin film, what they're actually putting on there is a coiled tube that actually wicks away the sweat from your skin. And then as the sweat goes down through the coiled tubes, it actually calculates how much you're sweating. And there are sensors, obviously, inside the tube that is sensing not only how much you're sweating, but how, much, how many metabolites are in your, uh, in your sweat, how many electrolytes are in your sweat. So it has all this capability packed into this little bitty miniature microscopic package. This is amazing good operational science technology. It is awesome stuff. And of course, they're actually experimenting on it even now, you know, trying to figure out where best to place them under your arm and your upper back, your forehead, things like this. Um, that's not the most pleasant thing to think about because that's all the sweaty, stinky parts there. But anyway, uh, but think about it. how cool is this that they can monitor and help people in this way now. And of course, it's even more interesting to see what the application is in the future. And one of the things I think about is, you know, they don't really talk about how the results are given to you. But my guess is that it's either already capable or in the near future, they'll have the capability of sending that information directly to your phone. You think about it, our phones are just a powerful computer. 
the the phone that you have in your hand would have been deemed one of the most powerful computers in the world like 10 years ago. It's amazing. Okay? Now, obviously not the Google phone cuz we know they're not they're inferior. Uh, no, actually we just know that they're anti-Christian and we learned that when they started blocking Christian ministry ads. Now, Android phones are okay. I mean, if it can't be an iPhone, I guess it's okay. Uh, of course, I'm just kidding. You can have an Android phone. <clears throat> For the most part, I'm kidding. But anyway, so you can check out this article on your sweat, how to find out how much you're sweating on the website at centraltexascreation.com. Now, the next article is how the herring adapted to the light environment in the Baltic Sea. Here's the tagline. An international team of scientists reports that a single amino acid change in the light-sensing rhodopsin protein played a critical role when herring adapted to the red-shifted light environment in the Baltic Sea. Remarkably, about one-third of all fish living in brackish or fresh water carry the same change. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're telling me that fish and some other fish, and some other fish all have a gene in common. Shut up. That is just crazy. Like, we paid millions of dollars to research this to find this out. Okay? Uh, <laughs> this is not very good. Uh, I'm not so sure about the results of this. It is interesting to think about, to, to look at, but I think it brings more questions to mind than it brings answers. And I think there's more to it than what they've done. Uh, so the bottom line is that they studied herring in the Atlantic Ocean and then herring in the Baltic Sea. And they actually mapped out their genome. Now, the ocean and the sea have very different makeups. And so seeing through them uh, is a little bit different in each, in each environment. But they found something interesting. The vision of the herring in the Baltic Sea had a different gene. It was changed by one amino acid. One amino acid would change, was changed to uh, tyrosine. And so it had a different gene that adapted it better to see in the Baltic, well, sea. Okay. Now, of course, they had found that other species of fish in the Baltic Sea also had the same gene. Well, based off their worldview, of course, this just blows their mind because they think, well, all these fish evolve separately. And so that means that this gene evolved separately in, say, 10, 15, 20 different species of fish. Or maybe the fish kind had the genetic capacity for this. And as speciation, genetic drift, and population isolation occurred, the different species in the Baltic Sea ended up with that genetic option presenting itself that adaptation presented itself for those fish that were in the Baltic Sea already having the genetic variability to have it in the first place. So it's not quite as impressive. The other thing we don't talk about, though, uh, but Randy Galuza uh, from ICR, I sure hope I said his last name right, uh, he actually has been studying this. He looks at the changes within um, animals and, and organisms and sees a designed monitoring system in order to switch back and forth between beneficial gene options. Now, I'm, I'm kind of 
saying this as a, as a summary, I'm sure he would say it much better and with more scientific-sounding words. Um, but the idea is, what if the herring has the ability to sense the environment around it, and through maybe as little as one generation, it can kind of switch on or off a gene so that its eyes actually adapt to the correct environment. And then that also means that because it's monitoring its environment, if you put it back into, let's say you put it into the Baltic Sea, it adapts within a generation. Then you take that one and you put it back in the Atlantic Ocean. Because of that environmental monitoring system and the way it can switch that gene back and forth, it would then within, say, as little as one generation, be able to adapt again to see better or to have an advantage in seeing in the Atlantic Ocean. It's this designed flexibility. Now, I don't have time to go into all of this and uh, give you examples, but after the conference, I'm going to take some time. I'll probably take two or three episodes to kind of explain through this and give you some examples of it because I honestly believe that there are some really good um, examples of this, some really good evidence of this, and it speaks to something far beyond random mutations. In other words, as creationists, we've always said, well, it's just a random mutation. It doesn't help an evolutionist. And while that's true, if we find this monitoring system, this environment monitoring system, and the ability to switch within a generation or two, that speaks so greatly, so distinctly, and so enormously to design, it would blow everything else out of the water. No pun intended. And so it's something that I think is important to talk about, and I will do that after the conference. But of course, you can check out this article as well on the website centraltexascreation.com. But right now, I want to get into the most exciting article I have today as I wrap it up. The last few minutes, I want to talk about this one. It says, Stone Age Building Site Has Been Discovered Underwater. Now, i got to tell you, this one gets me excited. Okay, Excited enough that, well, most people, um, most people don't know this, but I have a phobia of water. I mean, I can't stand rushing water. Like, don't even ask me to go to Schlitterbahn. Okay? Uh, especially water I can't see to the bottom of. If my feet can't touch the bottom, forget it. I just can't stand it. I hate it. But this makes me want to go underwater diving. I mean, I might have a heart attack, but it might be worth it in my view. Okay? Because they didn't just go find an old building underwater. They found a structure that they think is 8,000 years old. Now, translate that from evolutionists speak, you know, it's been underwater, so it will look like it's aged faster. And of course, evolutionists state everything older than it really is, if you really think about it. And so we're talking about a structure, a platform that's only a few thousand years old. I think you know where I'm going with this. Because it isn't just a building. It's a building that they found 11 meters underwater. That's over three stories underwater. They actually say the site is now 11 meters below sea level. And during the period, there was human activity on the site. It was dry land with lush vegetation. Importantly, it was at the time before the North Sea was fully formed and the Isle of Wight was still connected to mainland Europe. In other words, it was before a time where somehow 
a whole bunch of water got dumped in on it and covered up a whole bunch of it and left just what we see today. Yeah, okay. If you think about it, uh, it says this. Oh, well, let me say this. The cool part about this is that it's right on the water, and they say it's a platform made of timbers. Now, look, if it's a big platform made of timbers right on the water, or what would have been the water at that time, the only thing better is if they could have said it was a shipbuilding site. But wait, there's more. The Maritime Archaeological Trust has discovered a new 8,000-year-old structure next to what is believed to be the oldest boat building site in the world on the Isle of Wight. You have to remember, though, thousands of years ago, evolutionists, or actually evolutionists today, believe that thousands of years ago, uh, shipbuilding would have been crude. It would have been far less advanced. But that's not what the article says. If you read on, it says, Gary continued, the site contains a wealth of evidence for technological skills that were not thought to have been developed for a further couple of thousand years, such as advanced woodworking. It goes on. It says, it was then excavated by the Maritime Archaeological Trust during the summer and has revealed a, co a cohesive platform consisting of split timbers several layers thick resting on horizontally laid round wood foundations. This material coupled with advanced woodworking skills and finely crafted tools suggests a European Neolithic New Stone Age influence. In other words, they're saying it's way too advanced for what we thought it would be 8,000 years ago. The tools are, well too, are way too well crafted in order to be that old. The technology that, or the techniques that they were using at this time are way more advanced than what they thought they would be. So you're telling me they found, in, the words, in their words, one of the largest shipbuilding docks they've seen with advanced technologies or advanced techniques and advanced tools that they thought wouldn't be around for a couple thousand more years, and they're just averting their eyes to the obvious global flood. Now, of course, I'm not suggesting that this is where Noah's Ark was built. But one of the things that people use as an excuse for Noah's Ark being fake is that they didn't have the skills. There's no way for them to build a boat like this. But it doesn't look like that's true. I mean, how exciting is this? I love it. And there's other articles, too. I mean, I found other articles. There's one on a civilization they found. It was a, a civilization... Uh, in the Black Sea, off the shore of the Black Sea, well underwater. Uh, they're like, well, the, the sea level must have risen a whole bunch. We don't know exactly what happened. You've probably seen YouTube videos where they've gone underwater and they found huge stone structures that were obviously built and they're abandoned and underwater. They don't understand because evolutionists don't connect the dots. Okay? So I want to encourage you that we find more of this stuff. Pray that as we do find more and more of this stuff, people start to understand. They start connecting the dots and understand that the Bible can be trusted. That God has given us the real history of the world. And most importantly, that he's given us salvation to save us from our sins. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to hear more creation information, be sure you subscribe to the podcast. Uh, so you get notified when we drop the next episode each and every week. 
And be sure to check out discover, discoverycenter.icr.org for more information on the grand opening of the new Creation Museum there in Dallas. And of course, don't forget, go directly right now. No, seriously, right now. Go to centraltexacreation.com and buy your tickets for the Central Texas Creation Conference coming up October 12th at Calvary Austin in Pflugerville. Be sure and grab your tickets. Maybe I'll see you in Dallas. But until then, I pray that God blesses you with knowledge to know Him and courage to share Him. Thank you for listening to The 624, the weekly podcast of Central Texas Creation Ministries. Join us again next time as we look at creation and the Bible to understand the world around us. To learn more, visit our website at www.centraltexascreation.com.